Peer Review is a series of podcasts designed to shed light on the extraordinary breadth and diversity of talent that sit in the House of Lords. The House of Lords often gets a bad rap because it is thought to be a house of cronies and it is an unelected house. But I hope through these interviews you will see that there is this extraordinary talent, there is a great knowledge and experience, and with that I leave you to draw your own conclusions. My guest today is the best-selling author and screenwriter Michael Dobbs. Michael, thanks so much for sparing the time. I guess you'd have been in the House of Lords a lot earlier. You came in in 2010, had you not had a blazing row with Thatcher. Tell us a bit about that row that you had with Margaret Thatcher. Oh, the wonderful Margaret. I, I, I should start by saying I worked with her for ooh, well over a decade, uh, very closely, uh, and I lasted longer than most. Politics isn't about sort of cuddles and kisses. It's about horrible things and getting kicked, and, you know, that's how you go into it. So I lasted longer than most. Um, I, uh, I was the chief of staff of the party. Uh, I remember becoming chief of staff of the Conservative Party. They hadn't had one before. And I asked uh, a chap called Norman Tebbit, my dear old friend in politics, Norman Tebbit, what's this chief of staff job mean, Norman? And he said, well, lad, he said, there comes a time in every war when those who are in charge require that somebody be taken out into the courtyard, put up against a wall <laughs> and shot. <laughs> he said, your job is to find those bodies until the time comes when you will be that body. Um, and he was absolutely right. Uh, you know, I had a, an extraordinary time as chief of staff until I found myself facing Margaret in, um, in a terrible rage, terrible frustration, uh, in her worst moment, thinking that she was about to lose uh, the 1987 election, a week to go, and she blamed it all on me. Um, uh, Why did she blame it on you? Oh, because there were six of us in the room, five of the... The other five were cabinet ministers. So, you know, when you, um, when you decide that you want to make a sacrificial lamb out of somebody, make sure they're further down the pecking order than <laughs> cabinet level. So I was the only choice. And uh, it was ridiculous. It was utterly ridiculous, Ralph, because uh, a week later she came back with a majority, a record majority for the third time. But, you know, there are... But did your, your relationship ever recover? No, never. No, never. Um, uh, but... And uh, you'd, you'd been with her in Brighton when the bomb happened? Mm. I'd been with her since 1975. I was, I was the first person. I was with her at her count in Finchley in 1979. Um, and I was the first person to be able to tell her, Margaret, congratulations, you are Prime Minister. And, Amazing. you know, I, I, I've been with her through thick and thin. And Just sticking with the Brighton bomb for a minute, where were you and how did that strike you? At that time, I was Norman Tebbit's special advisor. And Norman um, was chairman of the party? No, he was the Secretary of State for Trade and Industry. So I, um, Norman and his wife, Margaret, are very close personal friends. I, I drove them to the Grand Hotel. Um, and uh, I was with them most of the time. Actually, the the day of the bomb, the day before the bomb, we spent most of that day in his room working on a big speech. Um, and uh, I was, but I wasn't staying directly beneath the bomb. I was staying on the sixth floor, very close to the bomb. But if you remember those photographs at the Grand Hotel, 
the bomb damage went up and down. It broke a, a, like a chimney in the edifice in the front of the Grand Hotel because it was a huge Victorian brick-built hotel. Um, so the party walls buffered everything. Had it been a new-built hotel, the whole thing would have collapsed. So um, I, I was actually closer to it than Margaret and Norman, but I wasn't in the way. Terrible time. And, of course, despite your row with Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher, you ended up working quite closely with John Major. Well, <laughs> sometimes it, it, it helped. <laughs> the two were a bit of chalk and cheese. Yes, I, um, I, I was deputy chairman of the party, Conservative Party, for John Major. And I also uh, ended up trying to organise a prime ministerial debate, televised debate. We'd never had one in those days. And uh, Tony Blair had said, I will debate this man wherever, whenever. And so, as we were in a great deal of trouble in terms of the polls, we decided to take him at his word. And my job was to work with uh, uh, the powers that be to organize the first ever televised uh, prime ministerial debate. And of course, um, and I, the, the Labour Party put up Peter Mandelson. So there ain't <laughs> no way. There ain't no way that Peter was going to deal with me and, and agree with me uh, a debate when, frankly, Tony Blair had everything going for him. And, of course, all this fed into your incredible book, The House of Cards, but we'll come back to that in a minute. I mean, you you're, you started life as the son of a nurseryman in Hertfordshire, am I right? Well, yes, sort of. It was a sort of nursery. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a mess. I, I think it went broke. Um, <laughs> and my first real memory of my father is uh, he was unemployed for over a year while he was looking around for the job that he thought he should have, which didn't come. So, yeah, it was a, it was very... Um, so it was a tough upbringing, not full of cash and all the rest of it. Oh, goodness me, no cash at all. And you you got to Oxford, but in between that, you did have some time in Berlin, which must have been fascinating in the 60s. Ah, yes. Um I was very lucky because I went to uh, grammar school. Um, nobody had been to university in my family before me, and so I applied. Of course, I applied for Oxford, and somehow, somehow I got there. I still don't know quite how. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but because it, the system in those days, it left me a good chunk of the year off before I went up to Oxford. So I had a German girlfriend at the time, so of course I needed to learn German. <laughs> Um, and follow her back to Germany. So I went to Berlin uh, to learn German for four or five months. And this was in 19, early 1968. So the wall wasn't even five years old. It was vicious. It was horrid. It was, it was just uh, as if somebody had taken a huge meat cleaver and just sliced the city in two houses into, families into, and people were still being shot trying to escape. Um, and were you living with a, a German family? or I, I, I went there and lived with a, a family of Flüchtlinge, uh, refugees. They had been uh, living in East Berlin. Um, people nowadays probably won't remember, but the, the, there was a, a division between East and West Berlin, which suddenly the communists decided they had to make absolutely secure because frankly everybody in the east was just flooding over to the west and they knew they had to stop it so almost overnight the entire city was cut in two with barbed wire uh, breeze block walls and and simply bricking up of windows and doors 
And while that process was going on, people were just rushing, grabbing suitcases of their possessions and running literally for their lives through the gaps in the wall. I, I stayed with a family of, uh, of, of uh, refugees who had just come across with three or four suitcases. Um, and, and they discovered that in those suitcases were, was grandma's reading glasses. Now, grandma hadn't, wasn't able, she was too old, hadn't come across with them. So you had a family absolutely cut into, mm. no way of corresponding, no way of, of contacting mm. each mm. other. So they asked me to buy a visa and go across the wall to grandma in East Berlin and take her reading glasses and some other bits and pieces and messages <laughs> with her. Oh, amazing. It, well, it, it was also horrible because you saw what East Berlin and communism was all about. They, they'd ruined what was one of the greatest cities in, in, in Europe, but also what it did to the people. I mm. mean, I, I think it just, it was my birth in politics, if you like, and the right way of doing things and the wrong way of doing and things. And stood you in very good stead for further writings that you you did later on in, in life. So uh, having left Berlin, gone to Oxford, you then decided to go to America where you, you went for further education, much to my amazement, in, and I think your parents' amazement too, in nuclear defense studies. Yes. Yes, there was another girl. Did you make actually. that up? She was or? American. Um, <laughs> she, she lived in New York and I lived in Boston. And I thought this was a, on my map in those days, Boston, New York only seemed to be about half an inch apart. <laughs> this was before the internet, before everything that we have nowadays. Um, so I decided to do uh, another degree. Yes, it was, it was the time of uh, Richard Nixon. It was the time of Brezhnev. It was time of the Cold War just beginning to thaw uh, a little bit. It's the time of the first time the West ever spoke to China. It was an ex America was still at war in Vietnam. It was the most extraordinary moment in international affairs. Everything was going on. And uh, I, I, was, I was studying it. I was part of it. I was working on articles at the Boston Globe over it. Yeah, you were at the Boston Globe for three or four years, weren't you? Yeah, I, I paid my way through school, really, by working nights at the, the Boston Globe. It was an extraordinary occasion because it was Richard Nixon um, it, it, it's commonplace nowadays to, to mock him and scorn him as being a man who, who was just corrupt and, and Mr. Wicked. Actually, at the time, he came very close to being one of the greatest ever American presidents. Mm. He, he, for the very first time, he did a deal with the Soviet Union to stop the nuclear arms race. He actually made the world a very much safer place. He did many other things too. But it was a fascinating lesson. Watergate, which brought him down, was all about one silly, stupid, bugged phone in some Democrat's office, which, because of Nixon's makeup, his personality, his feeling that everybody was always out to get him, he was paranoid. Um, it was one of the things that made him president because he felt that he had to do this to show them they were all wrong. But of course, it also brought him down. He, he, he destroyed himself. And at the Boston Globe, for 18 months during Watergate, I watched the most powerful man in the world destroying himself night by night by night until it became absolutely inevitable. It was a Shakespearean drama writ large. And I, was, uh, ha I had a ringside seat. And this, of course, is another thing that set you in good stead for your writing coming uh, into the late stage. And in, it was in... 1989, that House of Cards 
this brilliant story that you created based on your political experience, um, part of which was during the Thatcher years. Yeah. I mean, it's probably very easy for you to answer where you got the inspiration from, but uh, it just hit an incredible chord. Well, House of Cards isn't about politics at all. It's about people in politics. It's not about policies. It's not about the economy. It's not about foreign affairs. It's about people and power. Um, and I, I think the origin of it was, uh, was probably as a, as a, I think it must have been about 13 years, years old in school. My English master threw a copy of Shakespeare at me. Shakespeare, all I wanted to do was to get out and play rugby and play cricket. And I had Shakespeare. And then I read it. It was Julius Caesar. Mm. It's a fantastic story how the most powerful man on earth gets chopped, hacked, and stabbed to death on the steps of his own capital by his best mates, who then go off and kill each other. And I thought, hang on, this is quite fun, this story. I like Shakespeare. Sounds like the modern-day Conservative Party. <laughs> well, in, indeed. <laughs> well, so when I came to, to uh, write House of Cards, after having had that experience with with Margaret having her, um, where she, uh, she humiliated me um, in, in, in front of uh, our colleagues. I thought, well, I, I suddenly saw what was happening to her too. She was beginning to sow the seeds of her own destruction. And uh, it just became a very interesting uh, and, and, and colorful thing to write about. Which is about the uh, so your time at the Boston Globe stood you in very good stead. You became found e writing pretty easy as a result of it. Um, I, I think that the it, it, writing never came. Um, it was never too much of a mountain to climb. But what what I was able to see, you know, we so often see politicians, or we so often see history in two dimensions. Um, Winston Churchill, for instance, that 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 man, that that great bulldog, that that warrior figure. But everyone, Richard Nixon, Margaret Thatcher, uh, Winston Churchill, any person I've ever met in politics is so much more of a richer personal story. And you cannot understand their politics without understanding the, yeah. the individual, the flesh and blood, and what drove them into public life in the first place. Well, I think that's the same about the Lords, actually. You know, part of the reason for doing these podcasts is that we have People have such a rich life story, and you don't actually know about mm. it. All you see is how they're portrayed mm. politically. But Churchill, who you mentioned a moment ago, then became the inspiration for a whole series of books, starting mm. with Churchill's War in 2002, I think. Winston's War, if I may. The Winston's War, even better. No. Yeah. No. To you. And mm. then you wrote four books, I think, on Churchill. Four books, a television play, and, and I'm working on some other um, bits and pieces on him too. Yeah. And what's your take? My, my take is, what, what, what an, I, the first time I switched on to Churchill was when I was watching his funeral, his state funeral in 1965. Um, and we were watching it on a little old black and white television you know, uh, with my mother, who was in floods of tears from the beginning to the end. And she'd never met Churchill. Uh, she, she, and she was inconsolable. And I, I, I kept asking myself, who is this man? who has had such an effect on my mother that his death as an old man of 90 has, has brought her, reduced her to tears. And that just started getting me to ask questions and open doors and discovering 
what I regard as the much more interesting and, and, and deeper truth behind Churchill than um, than most history books, the, the two-dimensional approach that I, I mentioned. He, he was an extraordinary complex, uh, wounded character. Uh, he had his own deep, dark places inside him. His relationship with his father was a nightmare which drove him on all his life. And again, it's another example of somebody who was pushed into public life because of various demons in his private life. And one of those, the greatest in my view, was the the ghost of his father that was constantly sitting on his shoulder, mm. whispering in his ear, mm. Winston, you're not mm. good enough. Mm. You're never going to be good enough. And, you know, we, 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 we seem to think that because he was Winston Churchill, he, he was a completely made man, but actually there were various parts of him that never quite fitted together. And he was very unpopular amongst his colleagues because he was thought to be ambitious. I mean, people talk about uh, likenesses to Boris Johnson, and there are distinct similarities, aren't there? Oh, the oh, Boris talks about the likenesses of Boris and Churchill. And you know them very both, good, of course. Very good book about it. Um, y yes. Uh, the thing that's always impressed me about both Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher is that they, uh, but politics is often about compromise, but it is fundamentally about belief in values and what you think is right or wrong. Or at least it should be. It's not about running around after others saying, you know, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. Although that seems to be a bit of a modern habit, if I can put it that way. But, but both Winston and Margaret literally put their lives on the line. They put their careers on the line. They put their fortunes, their reputations, and their mortal lives on the line for what they believed in. Mm. And uh, they, they thought that it was that important. And that's why, in the end, they were so successful, because they knew what they wanted, yeah. and they knew the risks that they were taking, and they were going to ask others to take for that purpose. Mm. And, uh, I, you know, that's what great leadership is about to me. It's not... Uh, uh, it, it, and it, I think most people would concur with you. In 2007, uh, you must have had a premonition because you wrote a book called The Lord's Day. Or was it called Lord's Day? No, The Lord's Day. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> which was involved, I think, around a death in the chamber, which are not allowed to die. Who would have known? You? Well, you probably did hope and know that you would end up there, but it's an incredibly readable book, and you must have done a lot of research on it. Well, I had been told that I was going to be sent to the Lord's uh, much earlier than that. Um, but politics being politics, you know, the... <laughs> When the when the the postman came round, the letter wasn't there. <laughs> uh, you know what it's like. Uh, 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 so I, uh, I I assumed that I was never going to get into the House of Lords. It was never sort of a great ambition of mine, but it was a job. It was a part of the you know the political public system. Um, so I wrote this book, and uh, it, it it is about you know uh, awful things going on in the chamber of the House of Commons. Um, I'm trying to be House uh, of Lords. House of Lords, I beg your pardon. Thank you for that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be a little mysterious about it so people will rush off and buy the book to find out. Uh, and, and, and anyway, it's... Uh, I can give them one of my copies. <laughs> um, as, I, as I was writing this book, this is the way the system works, as I was writing this book, I began to think, oh, the security in the House of Lords around the state opening of Parliament is really rubbish. Um, much worse than I thought it had been. The state opening of Parliament is 
when the king or the queen comes and opens parliament and there's this huge procession, everyone's dressed up, we're all in our ermine, etc. Everybody is there. The royal family, the lords, the commons, the judges, the ambassadors, almost all of the, uh, the, the, the powerful men and women, the most powerful men and women in the country are there in one room. Now, you know, you can see where my imagination led me. And I began to get a little worried about this. You know, it's a sort of Guy Fawkes. Uh, but Guy Fawkes had failed in sort of 600 years or whenever it was ago. And nobody had done a thing about it ever since. They thought, well, you know, Guy Fawkes, we, we foiled that plot. So we don't need to worry. I got very worried about this. And I tried to alert the authorities. I wrote to them. I wrote several letters to all sorts of people, including, in the end, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. And then um, nobody, I think there's a system in government where you, 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 correspondence secretaries have various piles of letters. And there's a, something called the nutters pile. <laughs> where you you put letters that you yeah. know are just um, anyway. I think my letters must have gone on the nutters part. <laughs> I heard absolutely nothing until the book was published, and then all hell broke loose. How dare you? What do you mean you're exposing all of this nonsense, uh, all, all of the flaws in our security? I said, well, I've been trying to warn you. Uh, and uh, an official inquiry was set up to find out who had leaked all this stuff to me, and I kept saying. <laughs> Look, there is nobody who's leaked this stuff to me. I got it all in the, from the public domain. And that's what I've been trying to tell you. Anybody could do this. So pull your socks up. You know, get your act into shape. And I'm, I'm sort of glad to say that as a result of the book, they did make various changes to it, which uh, I thought were long overdue. Well, it's a brilliant book. And by 2010, of course, the rest is history. You've, you've joined the great House of Lords and have been a considerable contributor. You're, you're always there, despite the heavy work schedule and flying back and forth to Los Angeles to oversee the American version of um, House of Cards, as well as other work screenplays you're involved in. I suppose for someone who's got very strong views on Brexit, the Lords has been a fascinating place to be in. I mean, I, I've been debated to, her, to death by listening to the endless speeches on on pro and anti, but uh, uh, you've made some incredible, valuable ones. I mean, what, what was your take on Brexit? Why were you so strongly for leaving? Uh, I'm, I, I, I'm against sort of uh, systems that just get bigger, more bureaucratic, more blobby, and that become more insensitive, um, which is where I think the EU is headed. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's managing decline when I think there's a better option. I mean, I, I couldn't be happier than to be a European. Europe has been the source of a great deal of trouble from time to time, but so much beauty, so much art, so much, so much inventiveness, so much great literature, so many wonderful ideas. And I just feel that we're losing touch with all the things that made Europe, which was a collection of uh, different people with different cultures that, that made it great and it was the most powerful thing for a thousand years of, of history. Um, I think we're losing it. I think that there are ways of getting it back. Um, I was a, so I was a Brexiteer, not because I thought that it would make much difference economically. I mean, it, somebody said that the, the, uh, the harder I train, the luckier I get. Yeah. Um, well, well, I reckon I was... the harder I work, 
the, the, the yeah. wealthier I get. So I mean, that's the, at the end of the day is is is, is what econ- economics is down to. But there's much there's something much more fundamental than just money in this world. It's about relationships. It's about society. It's about cultures. Mm. And uh, I think we're missing today so much of the richness that was there and should be there. So mm. I was a I, I was a very keen Brexiteer. And then, of course, we went into COVID, and I, I, it's fair to say you, you, you're, you're suffering from long COVID or some of the results of COVID, which have been pretty debilitating, but happily hasn't affected your workload. Well, funny, funny, it, it sort of has. I mean, what I, what I have is, is I've had a couple of, I don't know whether this is relevant, but I've had a couple of years of, of medical, I wouldn't say nightmares, but real medical issues. I, I, I had cancer. Which, which dominated one year and the next, as soon as I sort of got through that, then I went, I, I've lost all my balance. I've lost... Which the, is a COVID-related thing. It's probably. It, yeah. it, it was a virus, whether it was COVID or not, who knows. But it's robbed me of all my balance. It's affected my hearing. It's affected my eyes, so I don't see properly. So it does have a... Um, it, it's, it's not life-ending uh, until I fall downstairs, which I probably will, <laughs> but it is certainly life-changing. Um, but, you know, I can't drive a car anymore. My, my eyes just won't a relief. allow me. Well, <laughs> fortunately, I made the, 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 <laughs> to the those strategic... Those go down the Wiley Valley, which is where well, you uh, take uh, your title from. I made the great strategic <laughs> decision many years ago of marrying the chauffeur. So uh, <laughs> that's worked out very well. But, but you know, I mean, very seriously, it's, 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 I've had to reassess lots of things in my life over the last couple of years. And I've come out of this very much happier and more balanced and and more satisfied with with the things that are important to me than I ever was before when you were running around like a you know a hamster in a wheel all the time it takes a moment for you to step back and see life in the round and and I've been forced to do that I'm deeply happy that I've been forced to do that because I think I'm in a much better Incredibly place than positive. I was and now you're writing a lot you're doing a screenplay yeah. and which we're not allowed to talk about sorry am i i, I i've got lots of projects i've got, I, i'm just about to finish off a novel i, I i've got uh, two big television projects uh, in in the wings or moving forward and i've got a a play that uh, i want to uh finish off i've been working on it for many years now it got put to one side because of covid and lockdown um but i'm i'm within two weeks of finishing it off and i've got lots of other things i want to do like that so I'm I'm raring to go. It's an amazing story. I'm sure your parents, I assume, are not here with us at the moment, but must have been immensely proud, and all your family. Mm. Well, were they my, when you got made a peer? My 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 my, my mother died in 1974, so it was 20, ago, 50 yeah. years ago, almost. Yeah. Um, and she never saw she never saw her grandchildren. She never saw the things that I was able to do. Um, she was a very modest lady who came from a very difficult background, from a broken family, um, uh, which, which uh, and the consequences of which I'm still living with. But she was a real fighter. She was a real woman of values. She said, life is tough, but I'm going to toughen you up with values um, and, and just make sure that you, you, uh, you make the best of things. And so she, she had, was the anchor for how you've lived your life, really? She, she was absolutely the center of our family. I, I, we were four children, all of whom were very different, and she took care of us all. The great, the only regret I really have in my life is, is that you know, she, she died so young 
that she wasn't able to get all the benefits that yeah. that hard work. She wasn't able to see her grandchildren and, and, and deal with the benefits that that uh, w- would have come her way. But I, I still see her now. You know, look, I've had a, I've had a marvelous life. I've been so fortunate. I, I see her every. Almost every day, I see she's looking up at me because she's only a short little thing, looking up at me and saying, <laughs> "Don't you forget where you came from, young man." You know, and and give me a warning before she give me a big hug and kiss. You know, and the great a- thing about you is, haven't they? You're incredibly modest about all your achievements. Going back to the Lords and the experience you've had through politics, I mean, where do you see that ending up? Um, my own involvement in politics, or no, the House of Lords. Oh, the House of Lords. Um, I think it's in a very difficult place right now. I think when it works well, it works wonderfully well and much better than any of the alternatives like an elected second chamber. Um, and it has in the past worked extremely well. I think COVID and Brexit have done the House of Lords a great deal of harm. I think it's sharpened divisions and the House of Lords only works when it comes together rather than constantly divides. And uh, whether we will have a House of Lords in another 10, 15 years, I don't know. But I do know that if ever anybody gets down to replacing it, it'll end up, they'll end up regretting it. Um, because an elected chamber, you see what happens in the United States, is just often two, two different chambers, the Commons, the Lords, the, 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 the Senate and the Congress, at war with each other. Mm. Um, and... I think that it is still really worthwhile putting the House of Lords back together as it should be. But uh, it's lost its way. It needs to find its legs again. Otherwise, an unelected chamber um, can't survive because you have to justify yourself the whole time. Well, Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much indeed for sparing the time. And very good luck with all these projects you've got on the go. Amazing energy. Oh, with friends like you, sir, I can't go wrong, can I?